As stories about an unusual rabbi from Nazareth and Galilee began to spread through the Roman Empire, churches and religious communities began to form. They claimed that Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth, was the Messiah, or Anointed One, who had been sent by God to rescue his people from bondage. But Jesus was an unconventional Messiah. He had no army, and he had no political authority in the great halls of power. In fact, he had been executed for crimes against the state, and stories of his resurrection soon began to spread alongside stories of miracles, preaching, and teaching. Jesus was so unlike the typical picture of a messiah, a mighty conqueror reversing the winds of fortune for his people, that early Christian leaders and thinkers had to come up with a new explanation for how this strange messiah had in fact rescued his people, and perhaps even the whole world. This is Logos-ish. Today we explore how Christians through the centuries have talked about the meaning and impact of the Jesus story, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Hey guys, welcome to our inaugural episode of Logos-ish. We are so excited to be here. Uh, this is John Hoyne, and I am joined by my co-hosts, Reverend Brian Betcher, Reverend Garrett Roca, and Reverend Sarah Relliford. And we are just so excited to be getting started here. So how's everybody doing this afternoon? Are y'all pumped? Are y'all ready to really dive into this and figure out how to be podcast hosts? I, I'm excited to, to learn, and uh, really glad that we start with like the most complicated subject possible. <laughs> yeah, really just easing into uh, our podcast career. Uh, I appreciate it. So I'm excited. It'll be fun. Good, good. I'm glad you guys are set. Well, in that case, why don't we just dive right in to our conversation this afternoon. We're really, really happy and excited to be joined by Pastor Shannon Mullen of St. John's ELCA in Beaufort, South Carolina. He has a passion topic that he talks to, uh, to, I think, pretty much everyone about, at least at some point. If you are friends with Shannon, you have heard his take on Christian atonement theory. And we'd like to share that a little bit with you. Like we said in the introduction, you know, uh, the idea of Christian atonement theory comes out of this question that arose in the early church about you know, how the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the belief in that rescues people or saves people or however you want to describe it, right? So Shannon, welcome, welcome, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, let's see. I am a Lutheran pastor, as you said, in the ELCA. I was ordained in 1995, so I've slowly uh, shifted from being one of the new guys to being one of the old guys. And um, I uh, have served in three parishes, and I've been in Beaufort for about 14 and a half years. So I have over the years developed a passion for atonement theory, which most people uh, would say, I don't know anything about atonement theory. That's actually probably not true because we all know atonement theory. We all have atonement theories that we use as our working understanding, as you said, of why Jesus died on the cross and or was raised by the Father to new life. And how does that actually affect us and change our reality? Uh, we all sort of have a working way of understanding how that works, but most of us maybe haven't ever 
much about it. One example of uh, how I'm known for this is that um, a few years ago, in my previous parish, so a lot of years ago actually now, uh, we had a visitor who came to the church office and went to the other pastor at the church and uh, was introducing herself and said, I want to talk about atonement theory. And the other pastor said, oh, Pastor Shannon's office is down the hall. So... <laughs> So uh, it happened to me this to, to become interested in this because I came out of seminary, a good Lutheran, prepared to talk about uh, that we are saved by grace and that we are sinful and declared saints at the same time, but we're always struggling with being broken and sinful people. And... Uh, and that God's saving grace comes through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and that we cling to that in faith. I'm not sure that I came out with any real understanding of how that works. I'm sure that the professors talked about it, but I'm not sure I had a working way of thinking about it myself. And somewhere in the parish, maybe about the third year, I started really struggling. I felt like that my sermons were pretty much all the same. I mean, lots of great examples. I'm sure that the people thought they were amazing. So, uh, But in any case, content-wise, it seemed like what I was saying every week was, you're broken and sinful, and so you can't earn God's love. You can't earn your way into heaven. But God loves you anyway, and because of the cross, God forgives you. And so go out there and try to do better this week and you're going to screw up, and next week come back, and I'll tell you the same thing. And it really seemed to be about, you know, cross forgive you, but what difference does it make? And that's what I really begin to struggle with. What, what difference does it make? And I don't know that I would have been able to put this into words at the time, but the, what I would use now is the phrase, where is the power for transformation? Where is the, the power to, to, uh, of God? to help us follow Jesus, to help us become disciples who proclaim the good news, you know. Um, so that's when I began to search for other things and begin to do more reading. And, and uh, about that time, the Internet was starting to become a populated place and uh, websites started popping up from various seminaries with um, weekly discussions of the lectionary readings that ELCA uses, the Revised Common Lectionary. So I would go to these different websites and read different people's theories and ideas and commentary on the week's lessons, and eventually I stumbled into something called mimetic theory. Uh, which really changed my life and, and really is what got me started thinking about atonement theory and um, got me thinking about how does what Jesus did in his death and resurrection actually affect me and the church and how we live. So I'd, I'd like to ask, um, how are, why are you Lutheran to begin with? Because, you know, in, in Methodist history classes that, that pastors take, you know, we more or less learned that, that Wesley, who founded Methodism, you know, met Lutherans and figured out that's pretty good. And here, let me fix it and make it better. Uh, so in some ways, you know, we might say, well, you know, maybe you just needed to be Methodist all along, Shannon. Uh, and we are, by the way, still taking pastors if you were interested. Uh, but no, seriously, like, 
how uh, did being, how did you come to be Lutheran or even Christian in the first place? Oh, well, that was easy. Uh, my father's a Lutheran pastor. And uh, so I grew up in the parish and um, I grew up uh, with my dad serving Lutheran churches and going to Lutheran youth group and uh, confirmation classes and all those things that that Lutherans do. I grew up going to a Lutheran summer camp, Lutheridge, and I um, uh, went there uh, as a counselor when I was in college, and I met my wife there, and she grew up in a Lutheran family, and I had a call experience while I was at seminary where I sort of, only time in my life that I heard uh, God actually heard a voice. You know, I think God normally works through other people. I literally heard a voice where a pastor was talking about someday some of you will be called to go to seminary and he was going on and on about it and and I was having a why is he going on and on about this uh the seventh graders who were in the class that he was speaking to were starting to look around and wonder what the heck's he talking about and and I'm like why is he saying this and I heard a voice he's talking to you and that was sort of a wow you know kind of a thing and uh then i that's the first time i ever even thought about being a pastor uh i was one of those i hadn't rejected it but i just never thought about it you know and uh, i called my dad and um said i had this crazy experience where i heard a voice and he said hmm that's funny he said your whole life as you're growing up i always uh had people in the congregation ask me you think your son will be a pastor too? And I always said, no, I don't think so. And then yesterday, my secretary asked me, do you think your son will be a pastor too? And I don't know why, but yesterday for the first time ever, I said yes. And uh, so that was like, ooh, well, oh goodness gracious. So it was a, that was definitely a, um, a mysterious and surprising and shocking experience. So then after that, I began thinking about seminary and sort of went through a four-year journey of thinking about that I'm going to seminary, but I don't know when, and eventually ended up there. So through that whole process, I never really considered anything other than Lutheran seminary because that's just the way I was raised and, and who I was. And it was formative. My dad, you know, didn't preach. He preached grace. Uh, he didn't preach fear. He didn't preach hell. He didn't preach, you know, um, you better get right with God. He preached grace and love, and uh, that's the way I grew up. So it wasn't so much that I had a problem with traditional Lutheranism. I just felt like that we, because of the historical circumstances, we're hung up on the question of reconciliation and justification. So all of our theology always turns back to Jesus saved you, and now you can just live out of gratitude. But I feel like that as a pastor, I begin to say, but wait a minute, how do we talk about sanctification? How do we talk about the Holy Spirit having the power to, to help us grow and to be different? And probably I could have just called a Methodist. So, but, you know, I didn't know you yet. So that was pre John and Sarah and, and, uh, so so a justification you're talking about, be getting back into right relationship with God and right. sanctification being, being, you know, a marginally better person than you were the day before. Right. That's kind of. Exactly. exactly. And, and in the Lutheran church, 
we have a tendency to understand sanctification as being becoming more holy or growing in faithfulness or righteousness. We, the work of the Holy Spirit, we tend to literally say the work of the Holy Spirit is to reveal to you that you're still sinful and broken and to drive you back to the cross into the arms of Jesus to hear about justification again. So sanctification is simply the, the work of the Spirit to continually send you back to think about justification. And that, that struck me as, whoa, that can't be all there is to it. You know, like, like growing in faithfulness is not just constantly being reminded that you can never save yourself. There's got to be something more. Uh, yeah, Shannon, uh, I think there's a, uh, I think all of us would agree that there is something more. And um, I don't know about uh, John, Sarah, or Garrett, but I would say uh, throughout my childhood, I I never really had pastors who focused on sanctification. Uh, and then when I learned more about it, I was like, that's what our entire Methodist tradition is supposed to be about. Like, we don't focus enough on justification in theological terms. We talk a lot more about sanctification. Maybe that's why we got to get together. Yeah, I, I, that might might help us. So, Shannon, uh, just for because we're trying to make all the theology like as accessible to people as everyone, can you give us like a simplest definition of atonement that you can? Well, a few years ago, we did an atonement theology class on Wednesday nights during the season of Lent, and we decided not to call it atonement theology at all because uh nobody knows what that means as you just indicated we called it why did jesus die on a cross class and so atonement theology is for me the simplest definition is understanding why jesus died on the cross and what difference does it make? That's uh, really a perfect simplification of that. I think that's amazing. Uh, why don't we go ahead and dive in and talk about some of the basic atonement theories or the general ones we hear about all the time? Right. Okay. So the first thing I think it's important to note is that there are a lot of things that the church talks about in terms of the word doctrine. And a doctrine means that, you know, we've sort of distilled down a theological premise and we, we see it as the truth. You know, we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity or we talk about the doctrine of justification. So or the doctrine of uh, Jesus being fully human and, and fully divine. But atonement theory is not ever reached the level of doctrine. We don't say the doctrine of the atonement, at least not in my tradition. Um, and as far as I know, most traditions don't talk about um, atonement in terms of doctrine, while we use the word atonement theory, and there are different theories of the atonement. Sometimes people are shocked to realize that there are different theories, or metaphors, or descriptions of why Jesus died on the cross and what difference does it make, because most traditions maybe have a dominant way of understanding it that they talk about mostly and so people assume that's the only way but actually in the tradition of the church throughout the centuries there are uh, lots of different ways to do that and there there are lots of variations and and but they really boil down into three sort of main groups and the first basic type 
uh, uh, we call the classical atonement theories. They're the oldest ones that you see in them in the writings of early church fathers who wrote uh, the early theology. Um, and the, the traditional original theory would be the ransom theory, which basically says that the devil, the forces of evil, have captured us and that we are going to be stolen away from God and are in bondage to evil and sin and brokenness, and we have to be rescued. And so there are various different ways to describe it. In the ransom theory, the idea is that Jesus pays a ransom in the same way that if somebody's kidnapped and the kidnapper asks them to pay a ransom. So Jesus, with his death, is paying a devil a ransom. And that sort of covers our cost and gets us free. And so basically we're, we're, uh, we're being traded. You know, the devil's like, oh, I get Jesus instead of you. That's even better for me. I'll get to take Jesus to hell. I'll get to take God to hell. Um, that's where we sort of slip into what's often called the Christus Victor model, is that Jesus sort of offers himself in our place to, to die and... Uh, so the devil grabs Jesus instead of us, but then Jesus uh, tricks the devil and defeats the powers of evil and hell and escapes from hell and rises victorious and so vanquishes the power of death through his resurrection and escaping from the riches of the devil. So those are the sort of original standings that the church developed. So that Jesus is freeing us from the powers of evil. They're helpful to think about, but at the same time, I would say the weakness of those theories is that it's really about, uh, it's like a movie. You know, how many movies can you name where there's a battle between good and evil? And so God and the devil. All of them. It's all of the movies. All the movies. All of the movies. Even romance movies are really a battle between good and evil, right? Like it's about two people getting together. And if they don't, you know, evil has won. I, I would like to compare uh, Christus Victor to uh, Liam Neeson classic Taken. Yep. You want to expand on that, Brian? Um, no, I'll just leave that right there for your uh, viewing pleasure. Jesus has a special <laughs> set of skills. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, it really does kind of say that because Jesus is special amongst all humans, that that's why he's able to be victorious. So, yeah. So, uh, Shannon, can you tell us about some more historical understanding of the atonement theories? Because they change over time. Yes. Or at least do. in what's popular. Exactly. They get worse from there. The weakness of the first one is it really has nothing to do with us. There's a battle going on between good and evil, and we're just, we're just here watching the battle. We're like the prize to be fought over. But doesn't really uh, do much in terms of my own personal quest for how do we follow Jesus. We just watch Jesus and the devil fight. So eventually we come to... Uh, an understanding. It's interesting, these theories kind of follow culture, which we can talk more about that later. Um, I would say that in some ways we tend to take how we understand the world and then describe what's going on with God and Jesus through the way we understand the world and what's going on with us. But in any case, we have the rise of uh, various types of satisfaction theories. The traditional word is objective atonement. That doesn't really matter. But the 
satisfaction theories basically mean that God has some certain need which has to be satisfied. And generally, it's our fault that God has a need. Um, for example, in medieval times, uh, in a world where uh, there were lords and serfs, uh, and there was a hierarchy with those on top who owned everything, and those who lived the grace of the lord of the land, you know, the, uh, if, the, if a serf, if a peasant, if a lower class person offends the king's honor, for example, if a peasant were to go into the king's forest and kill the king's deer, uh, that is an offense to the king because that didn't belong to the peasant. And so the uh, peasant has offended the king's honor and owes the king a debt. And so uh, the debts against the honor must be satisfied. And so we begin to talk about God having this uh, sense of honor, uh, this glorious honor, uh, this, uh, and if we offend God through our brokenness, through our evil, through our sinfulness, through hating and doing the things that Jesus called us to renounce, uh, then we owe God a debt, and, and we have to pay that debt. But we're unable to pay the debt, because if we're supposed to do good all the time, then we can't do extra good because we were supposed to do that good to start with. So we can never get enough extra credit to make up for the bad things we've done. And so we have to have somebody else to satisfy God's honor for us. Then the, probably the theory that it holds the most sway in the world today is the penal substitutionary theory. And that is, a, is, a, is another version uh, which has grown and it begins to see God as a God of both grace and uh, justice. And so, and this really comes to fruition out of the Reformation, after my own tradition. Uh, we maybe didn't run as far with it as some other people did, um, but Luther's understanding uh, really is the spark that creates uh, substitutionary atonement thing, uh, thing, I think. Um, we'll take the blame. I'll take the blame. I will say that all Lutherans take the blame, and other Lutherans will probably not be happy that I said that. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna say. <laughs> our I think fault. you can blame the Baptists too, especially the Southern ones. Well, they took it and really ran with it. Okay. I mean, or, or Presbyterians. I mean, them too. Okay. All right. Well, a lot of people have taken this. We're all to blame. Planted. As long as we're clear, it's not the Methodist fault. Oh, it's yeah. a little bit our fault too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, officially, the Methodists have a different atonement theory, but in the pews, I don't think that's probably true. So I think penal substitutionary atonement, which I haven't actually said what it is yet, but uh, it really is rampant. So basically, the word penal refers to punishment, you know, as in like our penal system, uh, our incarceration system, and that God is completely love and God is completely holy and God is completely just and God has a sense of justice and that sin violates God's justice. This is a law and order type of understanding of how things work. It's a courtroom understanding and it develops in a time when our 
cultures are developing these same kinds of systems. So shocker, we like to see God in the same way that we are developing our own system. We would say that we're forming our systems after the way God is, but uh, my suspicion is it goes the other direction. So the idea then becomes that because of our sin, we have offended the justice, the, the righteousness of God. We have offended God's pure justice, and that therefore um, punishment must be exacted to make up for the crime. And so again, as with all of these different types of satisfaction ways of looking at it, the problem is you can't be good to make up for the sin because you were supposed to be good anyway. So being good doesn't give you any extra credits to cancel out your sin. So that's why um, we end up uh, needing Jesus to take our punishment for us, to take our stripes for us. The more we talk about this type of uh, penal substitutionary atonement theory, the more you will start to realize it's shot all through our hymns. It goes through all of our, you know, little greeting cards that people send out. It's the way people talk. We talk about Jesus paid the price. Jesus took our punishment for us. If you'd like, I can share what I call the crass southern version of... Absolutely. Please do. Yes. Um, I have a friend that uh, makes me say this for him every time I sing. Um, let's see, how does it go? <clears throat> well, the crass southern version would be, well, it's when your, uh, your uh, brother runs up to you and says, man... God is really, really pissed off at you. Daddy, God is so mad, and he was going to beat the shit out of you. He was going to wear you out, but you got lucky because Jesus took your ass whooping for you. But you better straighten up because if God gets mad again, I don't know if Jesus is going to do that for you a second time. You better straighten up. This is your second chance that Jesus gave you. I mean, that didn't, uh, not sure that came out exactly as well as I would have liked it to, but it's been a while. I understand since I, penal substitutionary atonement now, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think, I think it's interesting because um, it becomes very hard, I think, to imagine God as love if God is also going to, like, you know, hit me <laughs> for something I may or may not have done. Right. Right. Like, this abusive father image is what emerges, at least from yeah. what I hear about. Well, and, and God needs blood payment. You see, God has to have, it's a sacrificial understanding. It's an understanding that requires uh, blood for blood. And it, it's a vengeance-based uh, theory. And, and the traditional way of understanding that is to say that God is love, and God loves us, but God is also just. And God must, God basically can't stand to be around us because we're so broken and sinful. And that God's perfection is a, is, cannot be, we can't be reconciled because we're so offensive uh, to God. So, so Jesus then, again, takes our punishment. It's like God has to, has to exact the punishment in order to be able to forgive. And so the problem with it uh, for me is that 
um, it creates an image of God, as you just said, which has very little to do with any of the things that Jesus says about his father, his Abba, has almost nothing to do with any of the things that Jesus says about I am the father and the father's in me. And if you've seen me, you've seen the father and the father loves me and I love you. I mean, there's almost nothing in the gospel of John that you can even pretend supports penal substitutionary atonement. And yet it's the dominant, it's the dominant understanding in our uh, culture. Well, Shannon, I say more about why I think it's dominant, if you like, but that, uh, go ahead and ask question. Yeah, Shannon, I'd love to know why you think it's more. I, just from personal experience, it's because I knew I needed a whooping every now and again. I think uh, one thing that was interesting, you know, it's, you know, you say it creates this fear-based relationship and the need to repay blood for blood. You know, I didn't grow up in the church and the little bit of church I did have was, you know, twice a year Catholic mass. So a good old Metho Catholic um, or Catho Methodic, whatever it is. Um, but the one thing that always struck me was why is it, why is always the pinnacle moment the cross? Um, but, you know, and that's the forgiveness of sin. But when I read the stories throughout the gospels, Jesus is forgiving sin while he's alive and well and walking around. And with the penal atonement thing, there's always that fear of, if I mess up again, then that's it. You know, it's like the free structure out, like the grace that Jesus gave wasn't enough. And so like when I started to engage in scriptures, I started to think about that. So do you think that depending on where you are or how you were brought up, there's more focus on like the death aspect of atonement or the life aspect of atonement? I guess that's that's the line I always ask. Why is it always about death on the cross rather than um, when Jesus begins to um, do these miracles, do the healings, and forgive sin? Uh, where does why doesn't that count as atonement? And it only counts as the cross. It's violent. Well, now you're jumping into all the big stuff, and that's great. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Good. I mean, that's where we're headed, right? You don't want to talk about where we've been without getting to where we want to go. So first, let me say, when I first realized this understanding of really is dominant, it's the number one way that the death and resurrection, the atonement is the how it matters, why, what Jesus actually does for us. The number one way is talked about in our American culture. I, I can't speak for any other place, but in our culture, it really is dominant. Two examples when I taught the class on why did Jesus die on the cross, AKA atonement theory, um, on the first night we were talking about ransom theory and I was saying, this is why, this is a strength of it. Here's what's good about helping us understand Jesus and, and here's what's uh, maybe a weakness about it. And then one person raised their hand and said, well, the reason that this one's not good is because it's wrong. And the right answer is, and then he proceeded to lay out penal substitutionary atonement theory. Again, he was raised in a, a more um, evangelical or fundamentalist background, and he was taught this is the way it is. Never the church has had many different ways of talking about it. Um, so it is dominant. Another experience I had, I um, was looking for a Bible school, uh, vacation Bible school curriculum 
and I started looking at curriculums. And you know, the ads on the web pages for the curriculums don't say anything about what they believe or what they teach. It just says, here's the five cartoon characters that you're going to meet. And here's the five theme verses for the day. And you don't really know what they teach or what, what where they're coming from and whether they're going to talk about the wrath of God that needs to smite somebody in order to get vengeance sin. So I wanted to know. And I, uh, so I clicked on the About Us page for this Vacation Bible School curriculum and found this uh, description of penal substitutionary atonement theory. That we're all sinful and we're all going to burn in hell, but Jesus... Um, paid the price and took our whipping for us. They don't use those words, but I love those words. Jesus took our whipping for us. And so now uh, if you accept that truth, you can go to heaven. And, and I'm like, wow. So I don't know what the curriculum will say, but it's probably informed by that. So then I clicked on the next one. You know, there are only like five companies that make Bible school curriculum. And I clicked on all of them. And just one after the another, that's the kind of, they were all the same. It all had that kind of stuff written on the, the web page. And again, uh, it's problematic in the imagery it portrays of God. It also is, is problematic in that then what is the role of the church? Church's role is really just to tell people this story that if you don't straighten up, then you're going to get, what's the past tense of smite? You're going to get smited. Smited? Smite. Smote. Smote. I like smote. Let's go with smote. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, then I think too, Shannon, doesn't the church kind of become a, an enforcer of a particular like moral code? Because, you know, then, you know, you're worried that your loved ones are at risk of eternal damnation and what's a little like. Yep. You know. and, and, and last time I checked, I never saw that in the Gospels or in Acts that that's what the church was supposed to be. Or, yeah. even, or even in Paul, like... So I'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute. I, you mentioned earlier, Shannon, that you, you felt like um, the, the material isn't necessarily there in the Bible to come up with a, you know, penal substitutionary atonement or something like that. But I think, you know, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew in particular and the sort of routine metaphors Jesus uses for, um, you know, punishment and salvation, right? You know, he tells these stories about... Um, these parables, like the parable of the king who sends out his armies and kills everybody who was supposed to come to the party who didn't come to the party. And then it's a happy-ish ending because he invites everybody else to the party. And those jerks who didn't come to the party, well, you know, we don't really care about them anymore. And then, of course, the king kicks this random guy out of the party who couldn't be bothered to dress right. But, you know, there's enough, I think, there stories like that that do kind of feed into this if we want it to be fed into. Yeah, and I actually don't think I said that you can't support it with the Bible. And if I were a type of Christian who believed this, I might have to call God smiting down on you for saying I said that. But <laughs> um, yes, there are definitely verses and passages. And we're in the year of Matthew right now, preaching from Matthew week after week. And I literally have had to preach. A, I preached a sermon a couple of weeks ago where I basically said, you know, Matthew's wrong. And I claim Matthew's wrong based on the authority of the other three Gospels. And, you know, if, if this is exactly what he meant, then that's not what Jesus said everywhere else. So, it, you know, I, there is definitely warrant penal substitutionary atonement theory in the Bible and even in the New Testament. But 
what I did say, I did say it. I'll admit to it. I won't call down God smiting on you. I said, in the words of Jesus, it's very hard. Outside of a couple parables, probably in Matthew, in Jesus' teaching about how to live, you know, of course, Matthew's redeemed because he gives us the, the straight out, the Beatitudes, he and Luke. So, um, you know, I would say um, Brian McLaren has a, a thing that he likes to say. I don't know if he generated it, but he's like, why is it that Christians are so obsessed with posting the Ten Commandments? Because that, that a moral code. He's like, why are Christians not obsessed with posting the Beatitudes? which gets back to the question that we mentioned earlier of why is this theory dominant? Well, let me just put it simply. If God is a God of wrath that must be satisfied, whose justice, which is offended by our brokenness, our unrighteousness, our sin, has to be um, repaired, uh, and Jesus is the only one that can do that for us. Otherwise, we will be subject to the wrath of God, if God is a God of love and of wrath, then I as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, can also be a Christian of love and a Christian of wrath. And all I have to do is prove to myself that the people I hate are the same ones that God hates, and then it's okay for me to hate them. All I have to do is find an authoritative scripture passage or authoritative leader to stand up and tell me this is the moral code and if you're following it you're in and if you're not following it you're out and I can just search until I find the person who interprets the moral code in the way that allows me to be the competitive um, vengeful authoritarian um, self-centered jerk that I want to be and then we can do Taken starring Jesus as Liam Neeson, right? <laughs> right. So, so the reason I think that this theory is so pervasive is that it authorizes the most license for hate and violence. It mm. actually asks very little of us because all we have to do is say, thank you, Jesus, for taking my whipping I trust that you are going to take me to heaven instead of hell, then I can go out into a capitalist market and smite my neighbor in order to get ahead of him and be engaged in acquisitive rivalry every day, not feel bad about it. So Shannon, you make a interesting point that um, these kind of transactional objective theories of atonement kind of emerge in the same like stream of history as like kind of beginnings of falls of monarchies and kind of the rise of new economic systems like capitalism. That's just a really interesting thing to see how the world changed like in that period of time over a couple of hundred years. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden we, we live in a world that is uh, supported or undergirded by this theology that says that violence is okay. And you look at nation states, you look at churches, and you look at institutions, the large institutional structures of a culture, what they basically do is actually use violence to prevent violence. 
use war to prevent violence, use incarceration to prevent violence. And so they, they, they require you to create a tool, tools of discernment through which you say, well, this violence is okay. It's even holy. This violence is bad. So you can't do this one, but you can do this one. Or you can't do any of them, but the state, misusing Romans 12, can use any type of hellish violence they want to use because God gave the state the power to control God's or to do God's law and order uh, on the earth until the kingdom comes. And yeah. so it, it creates this whole authorization or systemic violence. Now, Shannon, I, I'm also aware that in the same kind of period, there's a, a kind of a counter movement. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about like moral understanding of atonement? Well, I think it's kind of funny that that is asking Lutheran to talk about moral understandings of the atonement because that... You're, you're the guest, Shannon. <laughs> I, I don't even really know that much about it. That's my weakest area. My main focus is on being against penal substitutionary atonement. But no, so moral influence are the subjective theories of the atonement, subjective theories of the atonement, such as moral influence, sort of really are about following the example of Jesus. And to be honest, the, the type of atonement theory that I think the church is developing uh, is probably uh, more in line with subjective um, theories of the atonement. Um, but, you know, there's the idea, the example I like to give is the traditional cultural example of atonement theory that's uh, a subjective or moral influence uh, understanding of atonement is the idea that you've all seen in the cartoons um, of the little angel and the little devil one on each shoulder and one whispering in each ear and that that Satan is outside of us and speaking to us and luring us and whispering to us do this do this tempting us but there's but uh, an angel or Jesus the words of Jesus are there to try to lead us in a different direction so um, again moral influence uh, that Jesus is trying to, when Jesus says, follow me, that we're called to imitate Jesus, which is a completely loaded word for me um, because mimetic theory that I've spent many years studying, the word mimetic is simply the French word for imitation. So um, I think that's um, what I see is, is where we're headed to and what's new that's bubbling up. And I know we're going to talk about that eventually. So, so let's go ahead and talk about that then. This is this is where you see the um, church going in the future. Uh, and mimetic, I assume, is is kind of like the animal description, like the animal who can hide in the sand and mimic the sand. Is that kind of the idea that you're looking at here? Well, not exactly. I think the word, the reason mimesis or mimetic was applied to this of new way of looking at things. I want to say it's new in the sense that it's new in the history of the church, but I don't think it's new in that I think it's in the scripture. But in any case, um, the reason the word mimetic was used to start with is because uh, the person who started writing about this, named Rene Girard, was French. So the whole thing was written in French. 
And when it was interpreted into English, translated into English, I think they chose not to use the word imitation because in English, the word imitation has a pejorative sense. that Like if you're imitating somebody, you're lesser than. Well, mimetic theory is based on the understanding that, that um, humans are simply mimetic beings, that we learn by imitation, that we learn through seeing another person and doing what they do. And um, let me take one step aside and say that, that what I would call, and I don't know if anybody else is using this physiology, even in the uh, the circles, the mimetic theory circles that I like to hang out in. I'm not sure anybody does this, but I would say that I would call these the, that what we're moving towards is an anthropological atonement theory. That we're looking at this is how humans are. This is how we behave. This is how we evolved. This is how human behavior and psychology and culture work. And here's how Jesus reveals the reality of that behavior and the way we move and live and have our being. He reveals the reality to it and opens up the possibility of something new and different and transformative. So the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changes what it means to be human and make a power available to be a different way, to be human in a new way. So that's, that's sort of where we're headed. And so the, the, un, the underlying anthropological insight is that humans are imitative, that we learn by imitating our parents as babies. We learn language by imitating. We learn everything by imitating. And even desire is imitative. That we learn why is, uh, this is the best example, first example I ever heard, and it sticks with me, why is a red sports car more desirable than a sports car of some other color? Because we were told it was. You want it more, so I want it more. You know, another great example is a child walks into the nursery at the church, and there's 37 toys to choose from, including one that's identical to the one toy that's already being played with, but which toy does the child want? The one that's already being played with by another child. This is not a negative or a positive. It's simply the way we are. We learn to desire the teddy bear because when I'm a baby, mom laughs and smiles when I take the teddy bear out of her hands and I learn not to desire the putting my hand on the stove and the hot tea kettle because mom scolds me when I desire the tea kettle that will hurt me. So it has a basic biological function. And, and we also know that lots of animals uh, are mimetic. All the apes are mimetic, um, but probably not quite to the extent that we are. We've perfected the ability to define ourselves through looking at others and desiring what the other desires. So then the problem, of course, is if I want what you want, then eventually we come into conflict, and uh, then we eventually resolve conflict by uniting against uh, the group against one and casting them out. And, and so that's sort of the, uh, where I'm coming from. This is the way humans are that we turn to violence, we turn to conflict to resolve the fact that we 
want what each other wants. And then institutions rise, which make that a little bit safer because it's safer when there's community conflict to have a police officer take one person away and everybody to say, yes, that person was at fault and thank you for bringing peace to our community, Mr. Peace Officer. Uh, it's safer to do that than to just let the whole community slug it out until we figure out, till we come to peace by half of us being dead. So we, we create these control systems and structures and then we like to see God doing the same thing. Um, but Jesus reveals to us that all of that leads to violence, death, eventually. You know, I, I really wanted to disagree with you with the car thing because every single one of my cars has been red, like since, well, not every single one, but most of my cars, especially the ones that I've purchased on my own have been red. Though it occurs to me now that, that maybe that goes back to the red Power Ranger because everybody liked the red Power Ranger when I was growing up and watching TV. And, you know, it's because he's the leader, right? Mm -hmm. um, and because the red fire truck doesn't have to stop for the stoplights. Exactly. Sure, sure. Or the red fire truck is just big and cool <laughs> and has lots of neat gadgets on it. Red is um, better because we all agree. Well, you know, and I like, I like the, this train of thought because, you know, imitation of Jesus and, um, you know, participation with and in Jesus is a, a very deep, very long time idea that has existed with the church. It goes all the way back to Paul, who was writing letters and organizing churches. And, you know, he talks about the churches, the body of Christ, right? We're all a little piece of Jesus. You know, you get Ignatius, St. Ignatius, who, you know, focused on the imitation of Christ as, as a way of practicing Christianity. Um, and, you know, being Methodist, I, we focus a lot on John Wesley. And, you know, John Wesley was all about uh, becoming a more loving, better person by beginning to inhabit the mind of Christ is what he called it. You would try to get to the point where you would think like Jesus and you would love like Jesus and, and you would mystically be shaped, you know, by your interaction with God into essentially uh, Jesus. You know, you're participating in this higher sort of thing and you're still you, but you're also... Uh, heading towards that sort of mystical union with God, so to speak. So, you know, it, it's a very deep idea, even if we cast it in sort of a more modern psychological or scientific, you know, frame, you, it goes way, way back. So I think we should probably start to close down for the afternoon. Does anybody have any just like final thoughts, flashes of brilliance that come to mind? <laughs> Shannon is raising his hand and they cannot hear you, Shannon. So you're going to have to say, with, say it with words. Yeah, I think the, the last piece is that so in this sort of way of thinking, what happens in the cross is that humans subject Jesus to the same power structures that we all subject each other to all the time. So the crucifixion of Jesus is not because Jesus is special. It's because Jesus is human and this is normal. Okay, so Jesus questioned the authority structures of the religious and political leaders. He talked about things that were not transactional. He talked about things that uh, God lifting up the lowly, the whole, the Beatitudes. He talked about 
you can even see and it's perhaps when you know like you know it was roman law that you had to carry a soldier's pack a mile if he asked you to but it was illegal to carry it two miles uh, for the soldier to make you carry it more than a mile there was a limit but so carry the the load a second mile is a way of peacefully resisting you possibly get the soldier in trouble and he would actually be no give me my pack back give me my pack back but in any case so what jesus does is he creates he talks about a different way of being human in that uh solving conflict through love and forgiveness and mercy rather than through sacrificial structures or violent structures or law and order structures or power structures but that's not the way that we become fully human. That's through love and um, forgiveness. And so, therefore, he threatens the power structures, and the power structures have to get rid of him. They have to get rid of him because that's their job. Their job is to keep the order the way it is. So then, in the midst of that crisis, every single one of the disciples, well, first uh, Judas um, betrays him, and then Peter denies him, and every other single one abandons him. So the 12 fellas all betray, deny, or abandon every single one of them. And then he appears in the upper room, and he says, and it says they're, they're hiding there in fear in the Gospel of John. And Jesus shows up, and the first thing he says is, you sorry bunch of, no, he doesn't. That's what we would say. You betrayed me, you denied me, you abandoned me in my, you said you would go to the cross with me, go to death with me, and you didn't, and now I'm going to blast you to oblivion, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have my vengeance on you, no, he says, peace be with you, receive my spirit, that moment, even when we kill God, God refuses to destroy us. Even when we betray, deny, and abandon God, God refuses to, to hate us, to take us on us. And so, therefore, then that spirit, forgiveness, and mercy that Jesus pours out on us, even in the most extreme moment of our sinfulness, comes a power, a transformational moment. Wow, I can be like that, too. If we can live like that, it'll change everything. So that's grace that's completely unexpected, erupting and changing the possibilities of how we relate, changes the possibilities of how human community and culture and life is structured. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shannon, for coming on with us this afternoon for our inaugural episode of Logosish. We're going to continue over the coming weeks and months to continue to bring uh, everybody some really hopefully educational and interesting religious content of various kinds. You know, we'll be focusing on different topics. Up, coming up among the other topics is stuff like violence in scripture. We're gonna be talking about making community connections. Uh, you know, we're gonna be talking about uh, Moravians who are a group of people who came to America at some point and established uh, a colony. You know, we're gonna cover religious history, various kinds of interactions between you know, comparative religions and stuff like that. So, you know, we're all very excited and, you know, you have been fantastic, Shannon. So I want to applaud you. And Sarah's, Sarah's clapping right now very quietly near the microphone. Uh, but thank you so much, Shannon. Thank you for having me. I 
really uh, enjoyed being here. Shannon, real quick before you go, is there one thing that you're enjoying right now that you would like to uh, suggest other folks enjoy? We did not discuss this beforehand. Oh yeah, so we do, we're gonna do plugs at the end of each show. Uh, <laughs> and we wanna find out from you, like what, what is giving you life right now? Kind of a quirk of this whole epidemic is that we've been forced to, uh, to find new ways to communicate. And even though we all get Zoom fatigue, I have connected with people from uh, the Wild Goose and from other conferences I've attended and pastors from across the country and old friends. And, um, and uh, in the season of Lent, before I even knew about this epidemic, I was making phone calls as part of my Lenten discipline to reach out to people and make reconnections. And it turned out to be the most amazing and wonderful thing. So, um, because once you have to communicate uh, by distance, it doesn't matter whether they live across town, across the country or on the other side of the world. So that's what's been giving me joy uh, in these days is reconnecting with people and talking with people. And so being on this podcast today was joy. That's wonderful. Well, I'm glad you found that outlet. I know, listen, I'm praying for all the extroverts out there. Uh, this has been a tough time for us. <laughs> so Sarah, what it, what is bringing you life right now? Summer rainstorms. Nice to kind of curl up and enjoy a movie yeah. or a book yeah. while it's raining outside. What about you, Brian? Uh, I'm enjoying my freedom from my post-COVID-19 quarantine. Yes, escaping quarantine is definitely a positive. What about you, Garrett? I, uh, I understand the power of freedom that I've been given in Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, finally out from the tomb, I see. Let me see. For me, I guess I'm going to have to go the nerdy route. I mean, on top of, you know, uh, connecting you guys, even on Zoom after going on like seven Zoom calls. I've been doing a lot of D&D and that role playing. Uh, it seems that those types of game are therapy for a lot of folks, that they get to pretend they were this or that or the other thing. It's just really interesting to be in the midst of people that are just creating off the top of their head. Yeah, I'm with you, Garrett. I just received um, my new copy of the Scooby-Doo edition of Betrayal at House on the Hill. So there's going to be a lot of board game entertainment at our house this weekend. So just you wait. Thank you guys so much for coming on. This is Logos-ish, and we look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thanks for joining us today. This is Logos-ish. We are about to sign off. If you are interested in learning more, you can check out our website and liner notes. We have a bibliography that was provided by Shannon that you can peruse at your leisure. Our music today was provided by audionautics.com. They have some really great and wonderful stuff, so go check them out. If you are interested in having your music featured on the podcast or joining us as a guest, just shoot us an email at logosishpodcast.com. That's logosishpodcast.com. Have a wonderful week, 